Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Greetings, humans. You have entered the command zone, your destination for all aspects of Elder Dragon Highlander. Enjoy your stay. Trying to think of how to make my voice sound like a cello. <laughs> I can't, I'm not gonna do it. I'm just gonna try and hit the notes. Okay, sure. It's a cello. And the drums kind of kick in at that point. I don't know. Okay, you it's a me. spinoff to a very popular series. Oh, is it like a Wonder Years-esque spinoff? No, it was a successful spinoff for a little while. It was, it starred David Boreanaz. I have no clue. Angel. Oh, Angel. Buffy was the series that it was a spinoff of. I should have known. You know, it's funny because I don't know him as David. I know him as Angel. <laughs> that is like the most iconic character Talk about to a me. guy who's been very successful because Bones is like Bones, one of the yeah. most successful TV shows like ever. It's crazy. But. Yeah. A lot of the people in Buffy have gone on to great TV success. Nathan mm-hmm. Fillion as well. Uh, also was a detective. Allison Hannigan. Yeah, Allison Hannigan. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. Jeez. Oh my gosh, she's killing it. Good show, Angel. Um, the Muppet I worked episode. on it a little. Really? Yeah. Oh, uh, what the, season? Uh, I worked on the DVD releases of it way back in the day. So cool. all seasons. Yeah. Nice. And Buffy also. Oh. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So did uh, so did our guest painter that one time. Yes, Rob. His, yeah, yeah, Rob. That's not any way with how we met, but <laughs> we both worked on the show. How's it going, everybody? You're watching an episode and listening to an episode of The Command Zone. I'm your host, Jimmy Wong. How's it? It's Josh Lee Kwai. And uh, today, well, you wrote T's main topic. I like it. We're, we're going to yeah. clickbait ourselves here. Yep. So today we're talking about one of the easiest ways to improve the power level, efficiency, and fun quotient of your deck. And it costs literally nothing except for some deck building tweaks in your mind and changes. But before we talk about that, we need to call out our sponsor, CardKingdom.com. Jimmy, I recently opened a whole ton of Amonkhet product. In fact, we did an unboxing video. That's right. You guys should watch the unboxing video. It'll be playing somewhere around here so you can see uh, the madness. Uh, these are the best unboxing videos on the internet. Just saying. Yeah, I assume. <laughs> I don't watch all the unboxing videos, so I it's hard either. to say that uh, uh, unequivocally. Um, but Card Kingdom was nice to sponsor that episode, uh, and they are the best place for you to go to buy your own boxes of Amonkhet and to buy your singles and things like that. And yeah. I gotta say, um, the invocations, mm-hmm. 
they look sweet in person. Oh, really? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I was well, iffy about them looking at the 2D like spoilers yeah. and everything. Yeah. They, they look, look sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Well, one place you can buy the invocations is by going to cardkingdom.com slash command zone, and they'll ship them to you ASAP. So the other way to support the show is to go directly on Patreon and go to patreon.com slash command zone. In fact, we call out one lucky patron every single episode, and this episode is dedicated to Wesley, Wesley Ellis. Ellis. Wesley you rock. We see you on Twitter a bunch, too. Yep. Uh, it's another great way to get in contact with us as well. You can send us a DM or tweet at us, and we try and respond to as much as possible. Obviously, we can't get to everything. But, Wesley, thank you for being a patron of the show. All right. Also, we had a giveaway last week for oh, yeah. Nier Automata. It's a PS4 slash computer game PC. Two codes. The winners are going to be announced on Twitter and Facebook. So, twitter.com slash commandcast, facebook.com slash commandcast. All right. Let's move right into the main topic today. I teased it a little earlier. It is the importance of mana curve the curve so this is something we've sort of been touching on a lot yeah in, over the last like couple of months during ep certain episodes in fact i think on the commander summit episode i listed it as my biggest deck building level up of two of 2016 oh. but i thought thought this episode we should maybe go more in depth on the subject yeah for sure and some of this stuff i well i realize like we've talked about this for like two years now but we've never been 100 percent correct on it and a lot has changed in the game rules-wise to also affect the ef the effectiveness of what Mana Curve is and why it's important. Yeah, I would say, you know, if you listen to our early episodes, it's going to contradict some of the stuff we're saying, which I, I actually think is really good because it shows that we've changed our outlook and hopefully improved over the years. Yeah, I hope to contradict myself a lot in yeah. the future, eventually, if I learn something new and be like, I was wrong about this before, so now it could be right. I will say as a side note, in life, one of the things I always admire in people, and, and it doesn't get enough play out in the real world, people are like, well, you didn't think this before, and now you think that. Actually, right. I admire when somebody says, yeah, and then I considered other things, and I actually changed my mind. If you never change your mind about anything, then I don't kind of don't trust you, because it's almost like you're too stubborn to actually reanalyze the situation. Yeah, critical thinking, very important skill in life. All right, so mana curve, back to magic. Um, what is mana curve, Jimmy? It's the distribution of your CMC, which means converted mana cost, across the spells in your deck. We often talked about uh, going on tapped out or going on the deck building website and putting in your cards, and it'll show you. You have this many one drops, two drops, three drops, four drops, all the way up to eight, nine, 10, 11, whatever. It's commander, it goes crazy. But the idea is your it shows you like in an actual curve, you know, it's going to usually go like this and then peter off before it gets too expensive. The idea being if you have way too much stuff on this end of the spectrum, on the 11 drops, you're never going to be able to play a card. And if you only have stuff on the first part of it, you're never going to be able to play like the more powerful cards. So you want to have a nice balanced curve that matches the mana you play every turn. Really quickly, I just wanted to find CMC or converted mana cost. It's when you look in the top right corner of the spell and you just add up the number of mana taking away the color. So if it's like two green and three uh, generic, the CMC of that spell would be five mm -hmm. uh, for those that don't know. So yeah, I think it's also put another way, it's the concept of making choices in your deck that are not only based on what the cards do, if they're powerful, if they're synergistic, but it's also based on how much mana they cost um, for the reasons that you stated, which is that at different points in the game, you're going to have different amounts of mana available to you. And if you spread the cards out along that curve, like you talked about, then you'll be able to be playing the sort of most powerful things at each point. Uh, because otherwise, you can get stuck where you're glutted with really huge casting cost stuff, and you're not doing anything, 
or like you said later, where you've got all small stuff and you're just not doing enough powerful stuff later. Yeah, if you look at it in the scope of limited and playing like draft decks, mana curve is really important because on turn two, you want to play a creature that's a two drop. And on turn three, you want to play a three mana spell. And on turn four, and often those are the games you just win, where you play two, three, four, five. Even if it's in limited, often they don't even have to be the most powerful at each of those slots. It's just you're doing something and your opponent's you know, they play a three drop and then a five drop, so they didn't do anything for two of those, and that's just enough of an advantage a lot of times. Yep. Um, this is one of those things that I think early on, especially in our early episodes and just early on with me in the format, where I, I sort of discounted it and thought that it was a more... It's more of a standard, modern mm -hmm. thing, and the more that I've played Commander, the more I've realized that curve is still just as important in our format. Now, where you look at the curve and where where it curves is sort of slightly different than those other formats. But in but the philosophy of Mana Curve is very similar, I think. Yeah, and you, if you guys go back and watch Game Night's episodes, you'll notice that Josh is often playing stuff on turns 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and other people may just be playing a land passing or playing a land and ramping. And the whole point is that like you're able to establish an earlier... It's not control or power on the board necessarily, but you're able to just grow out what you're doing and create more of an advantage for yourself over the long term. So that moves us into the next uh, sort of talking point, which is why is mana curve important? So now that we know what it is, why do you want to do it? We've touched on some of those issues. Um, it really just boils down to the fact that it makes your deck run faster and more efficient. So there's an old theory of magic that states that the player who uses the most mana throughout the game usually wins. Mm -hmm. Now, that's for one-on-one, -on -one, and it doesn't really equate 100% to uh, multiplayer because of the nature of multiplayer format, but it still has an effect on the game, whereas if Jimmy's on turn seven or eight, and he spent two mana on turn two and three mana on turn three and four mana on turn four, but I didn't have anything to do until turn four, so I basically wasted turn two and three. I didn't spend those five mana. He's Think of how much more board stuff he has, how far much farther ahead in the game he is because he was able to use that mana. And I can't go back once I'm on turn six and use my mana for turn three now that right. I found a free, three drop. Like I can't, It's hard to catch up in those circumstances sometimes. Yeah, and it's interesting because if you go back and think about a game that you played and go like, well, all the turns that I could have tapped out for something or played something, let's add up all the mana I could have spent over the game as opposed to the mana I did spend. You know, now the theory of magic that the, players, the player that uses the most mana wins the game. I think in Commander, more often than not, you want to be at least the player that uses more mana than not using mana. Yeah, and that's a thing that is good in all formats. And it's sort of, it's a piece of advice that I give to people outside of Commander very often, especially like limited. Um, is just like, don't overthink it. Use all your mana. Yeah. So if you're ever in a situation where you're like, well, I might need to hold this. But, you know, that's a two-mana spell, and if I cast that, I can't cast my four-mana spell. Just play, play your four-mana spell, and then later try and cast your two-mana spell. But don't just leave two mana that you wasted, unless yeah. you have a, you know, unless you're a very good player, then you can make those decisions. But most novice players, or even intermediate players, should just be using all their mana. Now, in Commander, again, multiplayer, it's not quite as cut and dry, but it's still very important to be using your mana, especially in the early turns, because you can just easily have, you didn't do anything till turn four, that means on turn one, you wasted a mana, on turn two, you wasted two mana, and on turn three, you wasted three mana. That means you could be six mana behind yeah. somebody else. That's not even counting if somebody else ramped and you didn't and things like that. Yeah, and a lot of times that does make a difference if it's like, let's say it's a Carador deck, and they want to dump creatures into their graveyard. So they're playing all these different spells to help 
move along their game plan, whereas you're just sort of sitting there playing lands. Maybe you played one mana rock in the span of those six turns, but by turn six, they have their commander out. They're recurring things from the graveyard every single turn. They're controlling the board. They have cards in hand and in their graveyard, so they've essentially made their hand size twice as large, and you're stuck there with a large hand with a lot of powerful spells, but maybe there's seven drops, eight drops, or just things that you wanted to cast, like it's a board wipe. You want to wait to use it kind of thing. So in general, you want to be using your mana because you want to be that person. And when that person, when that carrier gets board wiped, they're still happy about it because they have artifacts or enchantments or other things on the board that will help them recover from it. Whereas you're just starting fresh. You just have nothing but lands in front of you. So I wrote down here, but guys, EDH isn't spiky. It's about casting huge spells. Don't tell me to play less seven drops. Listen, this isn't only about taking out high CMC cards from your deck for low CMC cards. That's part of it for sure. But it's about building more powerful decks and building more powerful decks takes discipline. It takes not playing certain cards and playing other cards. That's what deck building is. Yeah. It's not inherently spiky to build with a uh, better mana curve. It's just more efficient and better deck building. What Now, what cards you put in there, uh, you know... Will determine. Yeah, if you're yeah. trying to combo off or something, which I would consider more spiky. You know, it's funny. I wrote a little note here because I know the Commander's Brew guys. Um, I was listening to an episode of them the other day, and they mentioned how our our playgroup was kind of spiky and they <laughs> used the fact that I had talked about mana curve as an indicator that our playgroup was more spiky. Oh, interesting. And I know the commander and guys kind of delight in calling our playgroup spiky, uh, which by the way, it's funny because I don't think our playgroup's super spiky. We come off that way because we don't sit here and tell people not to be spiky. Yeah. But we hear from competitive EDH players all the time about how they wish we would talk about competitive EDH. Yeah, and how our decks are underpowered yeah. in X, Y, and Z ways. It's like, I, guys, but it works in the meta that we play. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're not trying to be in the competitive combo off on turn four or five metas. And I, yeah. But again, I'm also not trying to tell those people that they don't like that. That Have fun. That's great. That's not our playgroup. So I don't want you to go into this thinking like, oh, worrying about mana curve is inherently spiky. It's not. It's just yeah. inherently good deck building the same way that building synergies into your deck is. Yeah, it's the same reason we tell you to put card draw in your decks or whatever. And you know, it's funny comparing it to Commander's Brew because mana curve is very important. So Commander's Brew, if you don't know, they focus very much on budget building. So they'll set themselves a price limit and try and build a deck out of cards that will cost them under that you know, $20, $50 limit or whatever. But the important thing about making those decks really work is making sure that you're doing so much at the table that you're having, you're making an effective deck. So if those decks are using underpowered cards, but they're playing a card in two, three, four, and five, again, they're going to beat a spikier deck that may not be able to play something until five. Well, a spikier player, maybe not a spikier deck. Somebody with more budget for magic cards, though, could easily lose to somebody with right. less budget because the person with less budget built their deck in a more efficient manner, manner, worried about mana curve more than the person that just, you know, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, they've got really expensive cards, but they're all six and seven drops, and they didn't think about twos and three drops because those aren't the exciting cards in your deck. Yeah, it ultimately goes back to the whole idea of, like, we just want you to have more fun when you play. You know, don't be me with Neheb and not and thinking that a top on one is going to save your life. You ended up having a pretty big effect on that game, though. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm really, gl I'm really glad I did, because when I said that in the interview, I was like, I'm afraid this episode's going to be bad. I was legitimately like, and you can probably see it in some of the footage of me just being like, just like slowly riffly shuffling my cards, looking at everyone's board like, oh, God, my curve is bad. <laughs> so let's talk about, I think, the big first step in this process, which I called Commander Curve Considerations. CCC. CCC. We like that alliteration. Um, yeah. So the first, si, the first and most important question to ask yourself, and the thing that's unique to EDH 
and you need to keep in mind throughout all, all of deck building, like always, is what is the CMC of my commander? This is way more true if your commander is the key of your strategy, which I think is pretty common. You know, if yeah, it's not, sure. you, you can maybe care about this less. I think this is amazing. <laughs> you can care about this less in general. For yeah, five color which brews. is funny that my epiphany was caring about this more because a lot of my decks don't even play their commander. But when they do, this is something I always, and you'll notice that um, in deck text we've started to talk about more, is that like, What's the C of C? What's the CMC of my commander, and how mm -hmm. did that cause me to build my deck in a, in a in a different way? So why is it important to worry about the the converted mana cost of your commander when you're deck building? Uh, well, we've talked about this already a lot. It's the one card when you're drawing up your card, your hand of seven at the beginning of the game. It's technically eight cards, and that eighth card is your commander, and it lives in your command zone. Even though it's not in your hand, you always will have access to this one specific card or two if you have partner commanders. Good point. Good point. Uh, so you always know that on turn X, whatever the CMC of your commander is, or when you're able to generate that much mana, you will you can always play your commander on that turn if you want to, if you need to for the deck. And so, you know, part of what is important about mana curve is having enough redundancy at each place on the curve so that you have a card in your hand that you can play at that time. So, you know, in your deck, you probably put X amount of two drops in it. And there's probably a few you'd rather have that are mm -hmm. a little bit better, but you don't know which ones you're going to draw and have available on turn two, so you want enough that you have a good chance of having one when turn two comes around. And so if you have a two-drop commander, you don't need as many maybe two-drops in your deck because you already know that slot is guaranteed to be filled. You always have your commander, quote-unquote, in hand. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a really important thing to think about when building your deck and choosing cards on your curve. If my commander costs four mana then there's a good chance that my 4CMC slot on my curve is where I need to take cards out of because I already know it's yeah. a Trax. I want to play a Trax on turn four, or it's Brea. I want to turn four Brea most games, and I don't need a whole bunch of other four drops because I'm not going to be able to play them on turn four because I'm going to want to play my commander then. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't put four drops in at all, like if there's some key combo piece that really makes the deck hum, or just even like a board wipe that costs four mana. You know, you don't need to be like, well, let's take this out because I need to play something else on four. Um, and something else that you wrote here that's really important is that the way that you can ramp into your commander makes a huge difference because there are a lot of different ways to ramp in the game. So uh, a three CMC general, let's say Animar, you would want to run a card like Finhorn Elves or Birds of Paradise that are able to pump out mana on turn two, and then you could potentially play your commander on turn two for a three CMC general because you have one ramper. And if you're a four CMC deck, and we saw this a lot with Eternal Masters drafting, or not Eternal Masters, sorry, Modern Masters 2017 drafting, you want to be able to play a turn two ramp card like a Signet. So that on turn three, you can play a turn four CMC, or, or four CMC general. Well, let's use a, a general like, let's say you're playing um, a Vile Smasher, but you've paired it with something that has green. Right. So you'd much rather play a Birds of Paradise in that deck than a Signet, because your Birds of Paradise can come out turn one, and then you can play Vile Smasher on turn two when you drop your land. Birds of Paradise and your two lands tap, and you play the Vile Smasher. Whereas if your general is four CMC... Like Brea. Birds of Paradise is not really that great unless your commander really cares about the birds, like it needs a creature or it needs, right. you know, because creatures are just, they're easier to remove. And so your ramp can just go away in one board wipe and you'd much rather have a Signet, which is a little bit safer because it's harder to destroy, or you'd rather play Rampant Growth, which puts a lands into play um, for a four CMC general. 
because you're going to play that on turn three with one ramp card. Now, obviously, there's these dream scenarios people talk about where you play, you know, Hapatra on turn Ugin? one or something oh, yeah. with, like, Chrome Moxes and stuff. Yeah, I don't usually build my decks that way because the card disadvantage is not something I'm looking for for the little advantage I get from having my general out, right. you know, turn zero. But you can obviously try and do things like that, too. Um, yeah. Turn three, Ugin. That's Turn. that's what I keep thinking back oh, to. That was insane. <laughs> <laughs> you can see how everybody's facing that game. We're referring to the game nights and uh, six, yeah. Cassius, Cassius drops a turn three Ugin, and literally every person's like eyes like pop out of their head, like, uh, <laughs> what am I supposed to do about yeah. this? I'm here, like I have one land in my in play right now. We were Ugh. lucky because everybody had built their deck with pretty good mana curve, so I had something out, and Mel had actually a couple of things out at that yeah. point. Like normal, there's a lot of commander games where turn three Ogin is the only thing on the board, really, and just j game over too. Yeah. yeah, Smuggler's Copter keeps going up in value in Commander. Crazily enough, again because of curve, I think. Yeah, you, you know? can play it on two, and any creature can can like get into it, and then immediately you're generating card advantage as early as turn three. Yeah. Which is really important. Um, okay, so, and another question to ask here under the CCC, the commander uh, consideration, curve consideration. I forgot my own little... <laughs> commander considerations, colon, curve. Commander curve considerations. Curve considerations, colon, commander. So the other question is, what CMC uh, is your commander synergy effects? And sort of like, I guess the real question is, what is my ideal play pattern? So think about like Animar. So Animar is a card that you want to cast creatures after Animar's out because that puts counters on Animar and makes subsequent creatures cast or cost less mana. Yep. So you just in your mind you think like the play pattern that I want is I play Animar on three and then on turn four I really want to play as many creatures as I can to get as many counters on Animar right away as possible, which means I do want low curve because I want those creatures to be able to play two or three or four. Yeah. Uh, right away and you want those creatures as well to have a like you know for instance generic mana the mana cost so that yep. a two generic mana and the green uh, wood elves will cost green eventually right and you can use animar to essentially kind of ramp yourself out like so, <laughs> the card's crazy so rishkar is kind of the opposite of animar in that rishkar adds a counter to up to two creatures one can be itself but you need another creature out when rishkar is cast on turn three in order to to really get full value. Mm -hmm. And so in Rishkar, you want low curve, but you want those creatures to be played before Rishkar comes out. And so that's a common play pattern, which is I want a one drop or a two drop so that on turn three, I drop Rishkar, I put a counter on Rishkar and my other creature. And now I've got six mana available to me on turn four when mm -hmm. I drop my land. And then there's curve considerations, like especially when your commander taps for mana. So when you're, or, or not even taps, just creates mana. Yeah. So the really, Rishkar's like this too, but Kaidel's another one where Kaidel makes mana. Well, Kaidel costs four mana. So assuming you play Kaidel on four, on turn five, you're probably going to have six mana available to you. Now, hopefully more. Obviously, I understand how that deck works. I'm just saying like a common play pattern is that my six drop slot probably can be more robust than my five drop slot. Because generally, six mana stuff is going to be more powerful than five mana stuff. The downside of which is that I don't always have five mana or six mana. And sometimes I have, you know, I'm stuck on five for a little while or I don't mm -hmm. get to six for a little. Well, not with Kaidel. You, you just skip over five and go right to six. So you might as well design your curve to lean into that aspect of your general. Um, and again, like I said, with Rishkar, you, if you design your deck that way, you can assume that on turn four, 
you might have six man available to you, in which case, again, your four and five drop slot could be a little bit lessened and your six drop slot, you know, increased a little bit. And again, you don't want to go crazy. You don't want to like, okay, I'm not going to have any fours and fives and only sixes, but... One way to make sense of this, too, is to play a commander game, goldfish game, with just the commander. So you'll have seven fake cards in your hand, and you go land, turn two, land, turn three, uh, or land, turn two, and then you're like, okay, creature, and then land, turn three, Rishkar, and then watch, and like, okay, I have three lands, two creatures I can tap for mana next turn. What can I have in my hand that would be awesome? A six drop, you know, because you'll have six mana plus a land. So... Always good to be able to visualize it as well because it's hard to just talk and just tell you what's going on. If you have the actual cards and you're looking at it and seeing it in the battlefield, like, oh, I get it. Because Rishkar's adding the counters here, this is the, like, what does your ideal hand look like after you cast your commander? Uh, we talked about with Hapatra how it was very important to get a Hapatra out turn two because you're going to need to attack right away because that's the most likely time when somebody's not going to have a creature. Mm-hmm. That's a play pattern that you want to play into. Well, given that, you know, what other decisions do I need to make about my curve? I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit later, but I think that always keeping that in mind will, will improve your deck building by a lot. So let's go on to the next talking point, which I called aiming low. So that you can win big or win high. Oh, I like it. I don't know. That's Aim, good yeah. Aim yeah. low so you can win big high. It's close. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this is the part that some people don't like, right? Because lowering... Your, I don't like this part. Lowering cast your... cast direction. Yeah. Lowering your mana curve overall across the board i mean yes commander is supposed to be about big spells big spells are powerful they're fun but having too many of them in your deck is kind of a recipe for disaster yeah i would i would retool your brain to think about commander being about big spells instead commander is about big effects really i like that a lot yeah Yeah. you're still doing big stuff but it's not necessarily costing you nine mana in one shot yeah um so why don't we want too many like high cmc very expensive mana costed spells uh, in our deck because we have way worse opening hands than we did with the new mulligan rule so before you were able to drop the seven cards and selectively choose which ones to keep and then draw back up to a full seven which was kind of busted in the really tuned decks because they could say like cool i got my two combo pieces in here i'll keep this draw five more cards and whoa all of a sudden they're off to the races now we mulligan like we normally do in every other magic game which i think is great well uh, we get one free mulligan one free mulligan yeah and then after that we go to six and you get a scry one but the idea is that you can't selectively choose your hand so you can't greedily build your deck to have a bunch of uncastable spells in your opening hand knowing that you're going to be able to mulligan them away you need to make sure that when you draw your opening hand of seven your deck isn't positioned in a way so that you have a higher percentage chance of drawing two like nine cmc spells but rather you have you know you want to give yourself the best shot when you roll the dice of drawing your opening hand of having a curve yeah of being able to go i do stuff on turn two three four five yeah think about an opening hand with seven cards but two of them cost seven or eight mana that's you an opening really hand of five cards yeah, yeah you have five cards in your opening hand because those other two cards aren't going to come into play for so long that they're just not even options for you uh so it's as if they don't exist mm-hmm. and you're going to draw them spontaneously on turn seven or eight maybe if you're still alive or not too far behind at that point so yeah yeah this is a reason that you don't want a ton of high cmc cards now some is okay you just you just don't go too crazy and i think people are a little bit upset about the mulligan rule because of this because they liked having those big spells and it just being like it didn't cost you anything in deck building to just play like you know all the huge spells Mm -hmm. now it costs you something and you have to think about it but i think that's a plus side you have to be more tactical and strategical with your deck building and that's going to reward those people and it's a strategy game so i want to be rewarded for strategy yeah totally um they also big cmc spells and i don't think this is talked about enough they're dangerous to play they 
leave you open to sort of big tempo blowouts. And what I mean by this is, it's not that you shouldn't play huge spells, but you are opening yourself up, right? So you play Blightsteel Colossus. That's a sweet card. That can win you the game. But then somebody paths to exiles it. What just happened there is they, for one mana, time-walked you. You did nothing for your turn, and it cost them one mana to undo what you did. Yeah, and then all the equity of however much anger you've risen at the table from casting Blightsteel and tried to, you know, equip it with Swiftfoot Boots to kill someone. It's yep. like, uh, uh, not good. This is why people hate counterspells so much. They don't understand tempo. Um, we get asked all the time, I talk about the Dear Abbeys. Mm-hmm. Dear Abbeys all the time ask us about... What do I do against heavy counterspell decks? And one of the things I, I mentioned, and I have a whole laundry list of things I say, is you have to play more things that are lower on the curve because the way that the counterspell deck is beating you is there's a mana disparity between what's happening. So you're passing a five-drop spell. They're yeah. using two mana to stop it. They're always coming ahead on that transaction. If you start playing two mana stuff, you're at least even, and they can't counter everything. So you go two mana, counter it, two mana, counter it, two mana, I don't have counterspells left or I'm out of mana now. That happened. That sticks on the board. It's much harder for them, the counterspell deck to deal with now. Or the counterspell deck has to wait for the bigger spells yes. to happen. Like, here's the thing. Like, a lot of people like to blame the counterspell player for counterspelling them. A lot of the times, you have to also assign blame to yourself. Because let's say you're, like, you're in the Dragon Ball Z episode and you're charging up your Kamehameha, right? It's turn three, and you're like, oh, I can't wait to cast this nine drop. And you're kamehameha and six episodes later, when you finally have enough mana, you're like, here it comes! And someone's like, counterspell. It's like, well, you've been broadcasting that you're going to do this for, like, six turns over here. Uh, so counterspells, I think, oftentimes, they're waiting for the juiciest target they can hit. Yep. They want to desertion it. They want to counterspell it. They want to redirect it or do whatever. And so if you play into the counterspell player's hand, you're going to get punished for it. Yeah. So that's the other downside of really big spells. The tempo blowout can be very big, and it doesn't... I think a lot of people don't realize that those moments can cost you the game where you spent nine mana, they spent one. Yeah. That's a whole turn that got taken away from you, and they only spent one mana, so that wasn't a whole turn that they lost. And um, all of a sudden, you can't do anything because you're tapped out. Yeah. Whoop. So, again, we're not saying don't play big spells. We're saying just just turn that knob down, play a few less of them, be careful when you play them, pick yeah. and choose. You know, having more lower CMC stuff isn't just about doing things early in the game, right? It's about versatility. So the way that um, magic is set up is that generally higher casting cost spells are more powerful than lower casting cost spells, but that can be balanced out, right? Mm -hmm. A three CMC spell, not as powerful as a six CMC spell most of the time, but two three CMC spells might be yeah, or the fact that maybe those two work very well together with each other to create a new giant melded spell, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, let's say you play an artifact and then you play something that cares about artifacts being on the battlefield. That's two spells, but the impact could be much bigger than a six mana whatever. So this is another reason that low CMC is so good, and we talk about versatility on the show all the time, which is like cards, we usually say like cards that have three different modes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a versatile spell, or, or, or even like a card that would count, we're going to talk about later mechanics that work uh, for low drops, but things like Overload. Overload's good because when I only have two mana, I cast like Clannic Griff and bounce one thing, and but when I have eight mana, I bounce everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, there's a versatility to having low-cost spells, like a one-drop, two-drop, three-drop, in that I can fit that in with another spell at some point along the curve and just get... Like, if I have two four-drops, I need eight mana. 
Mm-hmm. But if I have two drop, a three drop, and a four drop, well, if I have five mana, I play the two and the three drop. If I have six dra- mana, I play the four and the two drop. You right. know, if I have seven, I play the four and the three. And I can fit and take advantage of the amount of mana that I have and do things at all times. And that's really powerful because, like I said, those little wasted manas throughout the game can add up to the point where somebody's just got a 12 or 13 mana advantage on you because they were more efficient using their mana. Yeah. So those lower CMC spells help you in those situations. Also, it allows you to do multiple things per turn later in the game and allows you the versatility of sort of keeping answers up and still doing something, right? So let's say you have Path to Exile. Right. But I have Murder. If it's turn seven or eight, you're basically still get a full turn and you just hold up path. I have to leave three mana open for murder. Yeah. And I can't really play anything maybe that turn. It might take my whole turn. So I'm like, well, I have to hold up murder because if he attacks me with that thing, I got to kill it. Yeah. But if I, t- in order to hold up murder, I have to just not play anything. Yeah. So you have to look at your turn as not just your turn in your main phases, but it also goes around the entire table. And that's why cards like Vidalcan Orrery are so strong. It gives you the maximum amount of time to weigh your options and choose what to cast at the end of someone's end step, as opposed to dumping your hand out and being like, I'm tapped out. This is what I did. Uh, hope it works. And then passing the turn. Bling. That was a yeah. coin being flipped. Bing. Yeah. Flipping it up into the air. Um, I was going to say, what was I thinking about? Oh, yeah. The. Playing counter spells and removal is important to have low CMC because, like you said, like instant versus sorcery makes a huge difference. And there's also the idea I always think about of taking how many steps forward are you taking, and then how many when you do so, what's the risk of how many steps back you'll have to take if it messes up? Yeah, is it like lose the game bad? Yeah, like if you like, I'm going to take three steps forward, and if this strategy works, I win the game. If it doesn't work, I immediately lose the game. Then you probably, unless you love taking risks, shouldn't go that deep into doing something. But a lot of times, like, you want to make plays where it's like, I need to, I want to play two cards this turn. Mm-hmm. I can play either, a, or I or I can play a five CMC spell, or I can play a two CMC spell and a three CMC spell, and one of those spells helps me draw cards. So you play both those cards out, and this way, if it's like, oh, shoot, you know, like, so-and-so killed the thing, the other thing is like, cool, well, I still have a card that can draw me cards and get me back to where I was beforehand. If you just play the five CMC spell and then someone board wipes, then you're left in a spot where you don't get the chance to rebuild a little bit, or, like, make sure that your insurance policy of coming back into the game is a little better than it would have been otherwise. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's just versatility. It just gives you choices, and choices we have learned are just good. So speaking of choices, how do you choose your low drops? So that's the next talking point, choosing low drops. Magic is designed, like we said, where the lower CMC spells are generally less powerful. So you don't want to be running like a bunch of bears, a bunch of vanilla tutus that cost two mana because you're like, well, Jimmy and Josh said I should have a low mana curve. I'm going to put in this two mana tutu. Unless you're bear tribal or something. Bear tribal. It's Commander 2017. You heard it here first. That's the unexpected tribe. Bears. It's got uh, Surak, the bear puncher, as the uh, commander. Perfect. Um, No, that wouldn't be good because they need something that gives all bears plus one plus one or something, right? May not exist. (laughs) No, they'll have to create it. I mean, it's new commander. Oh, right, right, right. That's right. Yeah, new cards. Yes. Awesome. So how do you identify which lower CMC cards are going to help your curve but not gimp your deck? So oftentimes you look at them because they have some other form of utility, right? So there's this concept I like to call scaling, which is the idea that the thing that a creature's doing scales with the game. So something like Deathrite Shaman, which is a phenomenal card, and the more that I play Commander, the more I put this card into decks because it's a one drop. It has to be you have to be in green and black, um, but it does three different things. One is it can create mana if there's lands in the graveyards. It can 
do damage to everybody if there's instants and sorceries in the graveyards. It can gain you life if there's creatures in graveyards. It also exiles things from graveyards. Yeah. So it has a sort of targeted removal aspect to it that works against a strategy that's very prevalent in our format, which is graveyard recursion and, and shenanigans involving your graveyard. In fact, I will play more Deathrite Shamans now than ever because Protean Hulk's coming back. Right. And Protean Hulk goes to the graveyard, and usually there's a bunch of shenanigans to get it back out. And if in response to that, you, you exile it from the graveyard, they can't Karmic Guide it back into play. You know. By the way, somebody uh, told me about a really good combo with Protean Hulk. Oh, boy. Uh, and, and Deathrite Shaman won't stop it, unfortunately. Uh, it's oh, Machaeus God. the Unhollowed and Walking Ballista. Okay, so Machaeus the Unhollowed is a uh, giant black creature, three black, 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 for five, five. Six mana, so Protean Hulk can get it. Uh, and it says other non-human creatures you control get plus one, plus one that have undying. So whenever a creature with undying dies, if it had no plus one, plus one counters on it, return it to the battlefield with a plus one, plus one counter on it. So you can sack the Protean Hulk to get Machaeus the Unhollowed. And Walking Ballista is a zero CMC right. thing. So, but the thing is, it gives it plus one, plus one. So you take off the counter, you still got to kill the uh, walking ballista somehow. But still, uh, given that you've got a sack outlet on the battlefield, like an altar. Well, the walking ballista just kills itself by taking the counter off, right? Oh, yeah. But then it's not pinging other people. It needs to shoot everybody. Otherwise, because uh, Machaeus gives non-humans plus one, plus one. So it won't die automatically. Oh, I see. Right, right. So it'll it'll get rid of the counter and have plus one, plus one on that. But if you have a sack outlet, it dies, comes back with a plus one, plus one counter, and you can just go bing, 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 bing. Yeah, exactly. Win the lottery. Yeah. That's a cool card. Walking Ballista is one of those cards that just somehow out of nowhere has become playable in every format. It's but uh, yeah, very good. Deathrite Shaman, very good because it has, you know, it's like a modular spell. It has three different things on it that are all going to be relevant in different parts of the game. So if you know you players are playing fetch lands and evolving wilds, then you're going to be able to exile target lands from, la from graveyards and give yourself a mana. So it becomes a mana dork in the early game. And then later on, you can just pay a black or a green to exile different things and getting rid of those cards. Even if you even if you just have one extra mana, let's say you have seven mana, you play six drop, and you have one extra mana, Deathrite Shaman has that extra ability of giving you just a teeny bit of value over the long game. And that's the sort of thing that I think people don't really think about when they're playing games. They're like, oh, he played Insurrection and then won. Or, oh, she dropped this eight drop and then won. Deathrite Shaman is one of those cards that sneakily gets you closer to the winning part of the game without people really realizing it a lot of the times. Yeah, it's, it doesn't it doesn't like stand out as the reason you won, but you got so much accumulated value from it that it's one of the big factors about why you're in a position to win. Yeah, a lot of people asked in Game Nights 5 why you put dice on your fevered visions, and it was to track how much damage a 3-CMC card could do over the course of the entire game, and Deathrite Shaman has a similar thing. Like, if you had to write a little post-it note every single time Deathrite Shaman did something, that list at the end of the game, if the Shaman didn't die, is going to be huge, and it's going to be like, oh, wow, this actually did a ton of work, but it just isn't very apparent because the effect was always so small each time. Yeah, it's little increments over time, and it's hard to sort of get, to measure that. Um, and the next one is sort of similar. It's Scavenging Ooze. By the way, both of these cards, uh, I know some people are like, oh, but they're expensive. Fortunately, they've been reprinted, yeah. and they've both been put into more circulation thanks to Eternal Masters and Modern Masters. Scavenging Ooze, one in the green for a 2-2 Ooze. Hey, it's a bear. Uh, you can pay a green to exile target card from a graveyard, and it doesn't have to tap the ooze either. So if you have a lot of green, you can do this a bunch of times. If it was a creature, you get to put a plus one, plus one counter on the ooze, and then you gain a life. So again, this is a card you can play on two. It's doing something. And it's great against those graveyard shenanigans, right? It'll remove any card. It doesn't have to remove a creature. If it does, it gets bigger. Plus, if you're playing decks like Rishkar, Voral, Atraxa, the one when counters might matter, um, that is a card that, like, if you play it early, 
it might grow a little bit, stop them from doing something, hit them a few times, get some good value. Your two mana wasn't wasted early on in the game. You got some nice users out of it. But if you draw that card later and you don't play it, which is a worry with a lot of low CMC cards until like six or seven or mm -hmm. eight, you still can get the utility of removing things from graveyards. And usually around that time is when you're really scared of stuff that's going on in graveyards. You know, turn two doesn't tend to be a time yeah. where, although it could be with, like we said, Flash and Protean Hulk, but um, it doesn't tend to be a time where you really need the graveyard removal. So later on, Scavenging Goose is great. Early, still good. How exciting is that, though? You could play Scavenging Goose on five and hold up Beast within the entire turn cycle, and then if nothing happens, you just exile three cards from graveyards and maybe make your guy bigger. Like, yeah. sweet. That's awesome. The amount of value you got there from just having this out and having the ability to choose what needs to happen is huge. Not to mention Scavenging Goose sometimes if you play... So I have an Anafenza deck, and Anafenza mm -hmm. exiles cards as they go to the graveyard-specific ones. So playing a scavenger use will sometimes make people go, all right, well, this card is not going to be cast anytime soon because I need it to stay in the graveyard. And you're assuming that the scavenging news player will know to get rid of it as soon as it hits the graveyard. Yeah, it just turns off cards in their hand, right? Yeah, so yeah. it makes a person's seven-card hand turn into a five-card hand sometimes if they're a graveyard-heavy deck, which is like, that's insane for two mana, what you're doing. Uh, another one, and I wanted to call this one out because I had a little discussion, I think, on the YouTube comments about it, was Dusk Urchins. So it was one of the cards we called out for Hapatra. It's two and a black for a creature... Oofy. I forget. People told us how we're supposed to say it now. It's Oofy. Is it? No. Oof. Oofy. I have no idea still. I know you guys told us, but I didn't memorize it. Um, didn't I think didn't I, pay attention. Didn't it's think oofy. I'd ever talk about this card again, but here we are. Two and a black for a 4-3. Whenever Dusk Urchins attacks or blocks, you put a negative one, negative one counter on it. And then when Dusk Urchins is put into a graveyard from play, you draw a card for each negative one, negative one counter on it. So you can see how this works, right? It, ideally, you attack three times, that kills it, but it's got three negative one counters, and so you then draw three cards. Mm -hmm. uh, you could also block. You know, this is a curve consideration card because when I was building Hapatra, one of my worries was that if I'm on the play and I play Hapatra on turn two, there's plenty of commander games where turn three comes to my side and nobody played a creature. Right, which is like, well, I want only I want somebody to have a creature because then when I attack with Hapatra and I need need to put a negative one negative one counter on something, I don't want to have to put it on Hapatra. But if she's the only creature out, that's the only way I can get a snake. So I wanted an impactful three drop, and Dusk Urchins really fit that bill as something that also wanted a counter. Right, and so it really fit on my curve really well. And then it was also a card where later in the game it's not embarrassing to play it on turn seven or eight because I might be able to just drop four or five counters on it all at once, draw five cards. Yeah. And even if I only drop two counters on it and draw two cards, it's still fine. It's not amazing later, but it's good enough that, you know, the upside of playing it on three was worth it. It's a good point. There are also a lot of sweet cards from Amonkhet that want to have minus one, minus one counters put on them. So make sure you guys check that out if you're building the Hapatra deck. A lot of people commented, by the way, like, I'm building this deck next, so... It's what happens when the deck shines on on on, on the camera. It could have easily been Neheb, and I'm the one that gets mana screwed, and then everybody would be building the Heb. Hey, but... hey, lots of people are building the Heb deck too. You know, just okay, don't worry, bad, man. Yeah, they're so... building it Minotaur Tribal. Yeah, so oh yeah, they are. <laughs> uh, this next card is great, and this is one that, like Dusk Urchins, is you know it's it's awesome when you find these. I call them like silver bullet cards, cards that are just so good in the deck, but don't seem that, and also are very affordable. Like Endless One, a card that is a bulk rare essentially from Battle for Zendikar. It's a X mana cost zero zero, and it just enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it. 
Sweet. So this, this works the, so well in so many different decks. Yeah, this is the definition of a great curve card because it fills any spot on the curve that you are. Because it costs X. You can play yep. them 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, little, whatever. Yep. And it's in the decks, it's good. Rishkar, uh, Voral, Atraxa, the same ones as, as Scavenging Use. Although Scavenging Use is probably better in a whole lot more decks than just those. Um, it's great because you actually care about the counters. Yeah. Very, yeah. very cool card. The last one I want to talk about is a card uh, that... We were completely wrong about when we did the set review for Magic Origins, along with everybody else. I think this card's very, very good. I gave it a decent review. Did I was you? like, yeah, it's like, oh, it's kind of like, it's like a cheap Snapcaster right at the time. And I, I was think like, we, I thought we were down on it. I wasn't super down on it. I did, I was like, if you guys can't afford Snapcaster Mage, you should get Jace Friends Prodigy. And that's what really bit me in the butt, because currently uh, they're both. Uh, no, no, Jace has gone down quite a bit. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, it's like, I think it's under 20 now. Ooh, so. pick it up. It's, it's cardkingdom.com slash command zone. I'm going there right now. Hold on. Josh, you keep talking about this card. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Jace Vrins Prodigy is a very, very good card. It probably hasn't seen the uh, enough play at this point. It's a card that costs two mana, and what happens is you can tap it and loot. So you draw a card and then discard a card. And then if you have five or more cards in your graveyard, it flips over to a Planeswalker side, which is Jace Telepath Unbound. And that Planeswalker is five loyalty. It's plus one is one target, up to one target creature gets negative two, uh, negative zero until end of turn. I'm sorry, until your next turn. But then the negative three is you can uh, cast a target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard this turn. Uh, and then if you would cast it, you exile. Or if we go back to your graveyard, you exile. You basically give something flashback. Uh, what's the ultimate on Jace? I don't. It's remember. an emblem. Whenever you cast a spell, target opponent puts the top five cards oh. of their library into the graveyard. You just don't want to do that. Right. So here's the thing about Jace Friends Prodigy and why it's so so good as a curve filler. And basically, any deck that plays blue could play Jace Friends Prodigy. Now, I don't think it necessarily goes in every deck, but it's very good. A looter's just always good. Yeah. So you play it on turn two, and then you start accruing value at any point really after that you just tap it in loot um if you're familiar with just sort of common magic parlance do you loot do i loot should i loot is a common refrain among very very good players like lsv uh who basically say the answer is always yes always yes yeah because there's almost never a time where you don't have any chance of drawing a better card than at least one of the cards in your hand and if you don't, you just loot away the card that you drew. You drew, yeah. Yeah. The only time maybe is when you have the perfect card in your hand. It's the only card in your hand. Uh, even then, it's often correct to loot. Or if you have zero cards in hand, because then you draw the card and just yeah. discard it. <laughs> Unless yeah. you have a bunch of badness cards. Who knows? Yeah. So anyway, looting very strong in general and a good ability you would want to have. And then Jace also has the flip side, which is that you basically... Most people play Jace Friends Prodigy for the negative three, which is to Snapcaster or something, basically, out of yeah. your graveyard. Um, so that card just very, very strong as a curve filler uh, and can be just, really, if you're playing blue and you don't have enough two drops, Jace Friends Prodigy kind of fits in any deck almost. The only time maybe you wouldn't play it is if you just don't have any instants or sorceries, which yeah. you're playing blue, so that seems unlikely. Very unlikely. Uh, I thought a good way to demonstrate this, um, this whole thing of scaling, is to look at, cards that don't scale so scaling in reverse mm -hmm. so the first one was sarah ascendant which we used to talk about this card a lot and we never do any warrant you know why it's just not that good yeah people i mean we're, with lower curves people are starting to lose more life quickly and sarah ascendant becomes less and less relevant 
Yeah, so Saracenda is one white mana for a 1-1 one, one creature human monk. It has lifelink, so one mana, one one with lifelink. But it says, as long as you have 30 or more life, Saracenda gets plus five, plus five, and flying. So if you play it on turn one, it's a 6-6 six, six flying lifelinker. Which, I've seen this played a lot on turn seven or eight when they're at 20 life, and it's like, crap. This card's horrible. Yeah, really bad in that spot. Yeah, and so, yes, it's very, very good early on, but it doesn't scale very well with the game, so it actually gets worse as the game goes on. And as a result, our playgroup has kind of shifted away from Sarah's. And, it, and it's one of those cards, Jimmy. If that, you're in a life game deck, it's great. Yeah. But just by itself, then you're relying to have it on turn one to have it be at max effectiveness or turn two or three. It's a bit of a, a bigger risk for sure. Yeah, and I think Voltroni decks with tons of equipment, because even then at the very least, you've got a, a lifelinker you can suit up later. Yeah, totally. You know, I'm not saying it's unplayable. I just think it's one of those cards that early on when you you learn to play commander and you run into it the first time, you're like, that card's this, absurd. This card's broken. Why is this card not banned? Yeah. Like people say that early on in their sort of commander careers. And then you realize... No, it scales very poorly with the game. As the game goes on, that card gets worse and worse. Yeah. So it's not a card uh, you 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 would love to play. This next one, sorry. Um, it's just not great in our format. It's not that it's unplayable. It's similar to Sarah's in it. Lightning Bolt. Yeah. Just a one mana instant. Incredibly efficient. Does three damage to charge creature or player. One of the best spells in modern. One but, of the best spells in magic history. But just not good enough for EDH. In general. I mean, obviously, in there's general. reset combo... Uh, yeah, reiterate fireman's foresight all that stuff that you can do with it i get it but in general path to exile the white version is so much better because it scales with the threats right so lightning bolt once things have four toughness it doesn't work anymore yeah but path to exile doesn't care what the toughness is it does the same thing to any creature that's out and so therefore it scales very well as the threats scale yeah i thought it would be interesting to just say like there's okay theoretically there's a two mana four four creature that's it Great on turn two, just bad every time else. It just doesn't scale very good with the game. In fact, that card would not get played, even though it would be a very powerful card in yeah. regular Magic. It'd be great and limited, right? On turn yeah. two, you can reliably, in a 40-card deck, have it in your hand pretty reliably on turn two. Uh, however, in a 100-card singleton format, a 2-mana 4-4, four, four, unless it does something very special or it has tribal synergies or whatever, it just isn't going to cut it. Um, so there are mechanics that scale, and we're not going to talk about all of them. And one of the reasons that I sort of thought we should do this episode was because a new mechanic from Amonkhet is a very good scaling mechanic, and it's cycling. A returning mechanic. So yeah. cycling, yeah, it's an additional effect on a lot of cards that will say pay two generic mana or pay one blue, cycle this card, discard it, and draw a card. And it's great when you have, you in the limited, you draw a hand of seven, and you have two lands, and then you have four or five drops. And you're like, shoot, I got a mulligan in this hand. But oh, wait, a lot of those five drops say cycling one, cycling two, so that you know that you're going to be able to draw a replacement for that card, and that card all of a sudden isn't just a dead card in your hand because you can't play it till five. This works really well in Commander because in early games, let's say you just need that extra card, or you don't, you know, you're maybe you're missing a land drop. You can cycle cards away, and later in the game when you draw those cards, they're just as effective because they cost more mana. And you can play it then. Yep, exact. Amundo cycling very good. It also allows you to play cards that you maybe wouldn't otherwise be able to put in your deck. So totally. if a card says like destroy target artifact. That's not a good card if you don't see any artifacts on the table, right? Yeah. But if it has cycling, all of a sudden it's just fine because the times when you draw it and you need to destroy an artifact, you do that. And the times when there's no artifacts around, you cycle it away and draw a different card. Yeah, and the cost of just having to pay one or two mana isn't that bad. Right. I'm not saying play specifically. And you get a card. Play spe I'm, don't play specifically the card I just talked about. But <laughs> there are cards that are powerful enough with cycling on them that they give you that versatility and they scale very well with the game in that... If, you, if it's a card that is good late, 
then you cycle it early. And if it's a card that's good early, you cycle it late. Yeah. There's also cards with Kicker on them. You can pay an additional cost, and when you cast the spell, and when you do that, it comes in with an additional effect. So either more plus one plus one counters, or it's an overload spell. You know, the cards that work really well, like Cyclonic Rift is just a perfect example of a card with overload, or similar things where you get to pay extra mana, and it makes the spell level up hella hard. All right, so I know people like... Do, 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 do. Stats. Stats. So we're gonna do a sample curve here. Just these are sample numbers similar to the deck building template. Uh, this is not gonna be the same for every deck. But what I did do, Jimmy, is I went through all of our decks, not all, all of our recent decks, mm -hmm. because some of our early ones are did not follow these rules. <laughs> um, but our recent decks, I've noticed you've been lowering your curve too. And so I went through and looked at the curves on sort of the decks we use on game nights and, and over the last like six months or so. And just to get a good general average of where we're falling on the curve. So people can use that as some sort of baseline. I know people like numbers like this. Again, it will differ from deck to deck. This is not a one-size-fits-all thing. It's just to give you some benchmarks. So what I found was most of our decks had somewhere between 14 and 15 one and two drops. If you combine the count of one and two drops together, which I think is fair to do, around 14 to 15. Mm -hmm. Often we would have some decks that had above 20 in this category though, but nice. it, it varied. I, I, I'd say the mean was uh, 14 to 15. Mm -hmm. Three drops was usually the, the slot with the most cards in it was three, and there's usually about 12 to 16 three drops total. Four drops, which was a category that generally had slightly less than the amount of two drops, if you looked on the curve, mm -hmm. uh, had about eight to 10. And then I combined five and six drops, and there was about six to nine of those. And then about three to five, seven or more. So if you guys are looking at this on a like a, a graph, it's going to go like one drops a bunch, two drops a bunch, three drops the most, and then quickly go down when you go to five, six, seven, and eight. Yep. So I think that's a good just general guideline to look at your curves when you're building your decks and try and fall somewhere around those categories. And again, when you don't, just have reasons why you don't. So like in certain decks, like Kaidel, maybe I've got less four drops, because I know I'm going to cast Kaidel on right. that turn, and I got less five drops because she's going to tap for mana, so I want more six drops. Or in Rishkar, I'm going to have less three drops, more six drops, because that's going to give me the extra mana to jump that to that place in the curve. And so your curve might go uh, down for four and five and then back up for six right. because of the way that your commander plays out. As an experiment, I challenge all of you to go out and uh, if you, let's say there's a deck that just hasn't been winning, and it's a deck that's a big flashy one. Just try and just axe out a bunch of the high drops and replace it with low drops, play a couple of games, and then ask yourself, oh boy, in those games, would I have really have liked to have drawn that insurrection that I took out? Or did I find that it actually wasn't that relevant? And this way you can evaluate, like, okay, the deck does better because I can play more low card stuff, and then what of the big, important, high, big stuff do I really need? Because oftentimes it's fun to just slam in every single huge impact spell, being like, this is going to be good in this situation, this is going to be good in this situation. But oftentimes you're only going to want a few of those total in your deck because those are the ones that really matter. And a great way to find out if they matter is by taking them out and noticing if you miss them. Yeah, that's a really good point. I will say, too, that um, you know, with Deck Doctors, something we haven't done in a while, but I do look at a lot of the decks submitted for Deck Doctors because I'm looking for ones where I want to highlight them in the show. And I'd say a large percentage of them I don't choose them for the show because there's just one note. Your curve. That's it. You just need to fix your curve. You got too many high drops. And that's like a lot of decks have that issue. That's not an entire episode of the Command Zone to just say that to someone. So that doesn't get you on the show, but that is a problem that I see constantly. So, All right. All right. 
someplace to buy all those low curve cards that you need to slot into your deck. And a lot of the ones we talked about are not super expensive. Like you said, Death Rite, Scavenging Ooze have definitely come down. Jay's Friends Prodigy is not a cheap card, but it's come down from the $60 that it was. Yeah. Um, things like that. You can get them at cardkingdom.com slash command zone. If you use that affiliate link, you'll be supporting the show and making sure that we keep the lights on. Yeah, and let's say you add a bunch of stuff to your cart and you forget to use the affiliate link. Just go and type it in, hit enter, and then the site will now know from that point on of you browsing it, oh, okay, this is how they're getting there, and then you can you know check out and do everything as normal. Yeah, a lot of people tweet at us saying like, oh, I ordered a bunch of cards and I forgot to use the affiliate link. You can just even email them with your little... Um, uh your receipt number or whatever and yeah. let or them know tweet that helps us too yeah. or even tweet at them yeah and if there are other supporters you want to support because i know a few other uh creators out there are supported by card kingdom just make sure you add a note to anything be like hey i also love the professor and whoever else blah blah blah, blah in the notes and they'll know they'll know something else you will love to get a hold of is we have our very first play mat it's on sale now for one month only for, and we're, yeah at this point in. i think we're like yeah you probably have less than three weeks to pick it up uh, we're pre-selling it on kickstarter you can find the link in the description box below terry's going to be showing you shots of the playmat right now it's beautiful art done by jesse aronson a very talented artist it's a war-torn landscape after an epic edh battle we're calling it aftermath and uh, there's a whole bunch of different options uh it's available to be shipped anywhere in the world depending on you know there's obviously different shipping prices and mm-hmm. uh, you can get it signed you can get it not signed they're super high quality because they are going to be printed by Ultra Pro, Ultra Pro, who are the best uh, playmat printers in the business. They've definitely done it for the longest, and it's a regular playmat size. Uh, I got to test it out at the Amicot pre-release, and it was a blast. I had a lot of fun playing on it. I have uh, brought it to one too. Got a, actually got some really good comments on it. People were like, "What is that?" <laughs> you know, and I you was can like, get those comments too now. Yeah, so uh, it's it's very cool. Check it out. Yeah, pre-order you, yours you today. You have until. 22 days from when we record this so when this goes up you'll probably have like 16 17 days yeah so again the links will all be in the description box below and we'll tweet about it constantly as well so you can find it all online we are never selling it again yeah this is it so this is it um all right to the listeners i really do love to the listeners by the way uh whenever you guys answer the question i like to see all the different perspectives and whatnot so please tweet at us put it in the comments email it to us patrons you can put it on discord or on the patron page what was what has your biggest or most recent deck building level up moment been and how has it changed the way you build decks or think about the game and if you're on Facebook.com slash CommandCast, oh, a great way to interact with other people that have similar answers or different answers is by doing the comment system there. Because on Twitter, you can't really see everyone that tweets at us. Or on YouTube, it's hard to scroll through the comments. This is a great way to give thumbs up to the comments that you like and also to have a discussion and engage with other people around the world and see what their playgroups are like. So please go like the page, Facebook.com slash CommandCast, if you haven't already. All right, now it's time for the end step where we talk about something cool outside the world of magic. You got anything? No. Uh, Freddy uh, is going to be auditioning for the Magic Magic Castle. Castle. Oh, this is actually sweet. (laughs) So this is outside the world of magic, but it has to do with magic. So We're talking about actual, like, uh, sleight of hand magic. Sleight of hand, yes. Uh, Not the card sleight of hand. Uh, So if you guys are interested at all, I I would suggest looking up the history behind Magic Castle. It's this really cool uh, building in Los Angeles. It's been around for a long time. Neil Patrick Harris, I think, is now, like, the head whatever vizier whatever there's some name for what his like the grand hoobah of the magic (laughs) castle 
Uh, but it's really cool, and it's definitely one of the top places I would recommend trying to go to if you ever come to Los Angeles. Yeah, you have um, to get an invite or sort of know somebody. Or there's certain times of the year you can... Well, yeah. anyway, look into it. It's not too hard. Yeah, it really isn't too hard. Uh, but yeah, it's it's. I love magic and traditional magic. And Oh, and your brother is really actually quite good at magic. I mean, even he before... He spent a lot of time practicing. It's yeah, big... for this. But even before he was practicing for it, he would show me tricks and yeah. card tricks and stuff. And I was... I love magic, and I know decent amount about about it and i would still be like wait how'd you do that one and of course he won't tell me because he's a magician trickery well he kept his manicure very low <laughs> that's how we started out that's pretty cool i'm very excited uh for him to be an official what do they call it member of yeah the magic castle i would just say magician illusionist <laughs> <laughs> they're called illusions michael <laughs> all right make sure to check out our sister podcast the masters of modern i was looking for a segue i didn't find one but the Masters of Modern podcast with Alex Kessler and Ben Bateman is a great place to find out about the modern format and all things competitive magic. You can find them on Twitter at the MMCast or right next to us at our magic hub called Collected.Company. That's the webpage URL, Collected.Company. Mm -hmm. And our editor for the show is Terry Robertson. He does the video podcast versions of these episodes. So make sure you go, go on over to YouTube.com slash The Command Zone Podcast. You can also find our Game Nights gameplay episodes there as well as video versions of all of our podcasts. So if you're ever like, oh man, what was that? They keep saying Dusk Urchins, but I don't know what it does. Well, guess what? It's going to pop up on the screen so you can read it while you listen to us and occasionally see our faces. And special thanks to Jeffrey Palmer, uh, twitter.com slash livingcardsmtg. He does the really cool opening and closing animations of the show. So make sure you guys check that out. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Peace. For further inquiries, send an email to commandcast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at JF Wong and at Josh Lee Kwai. See you later, alligator. Greetings, humans. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.